You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest, I think, I think he's the best on the NBA. And, you know, he's got a big following as a national NBA writer, the Washington Post. He's an author. If you haven't read the book Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season, it's a good read. Uh, I think it goes down as kind of a time capsule, kind of captures what was happening in sports in an era that was really unprecedented. He's a great follow on Twitter. Ben Golliver joining us. I think he can talk about a multitude of things that I am interested in, and I really appreciate his time. Are you fresh off a flight? When did you land in L.A.? Oh, man, my head's spinning, John. It was uh, I went to Chicago for the draft lottery and saw Portland come up, you know, one ping-pong ball short of Wembenyama, but still get the number three pick. And then I was in Denver last night for game two, pretty dramatic win, and uh, now back in Los Angeles getting ready for game three tomorrow in L.A. Kind of feels like a last stand for the Lakers. You know, if they don't show up, uh, it's going to be curtains. So it's just a lot going on this time of year. What do you make? I, you know, I saw Mike Malone kind of saying, He's cre- even though the one seed, he's created this, hey, we're the underdog, chip on our shoulder, nobody's talking about us, even though we're talking about them. I think it's it's good gamesmanship. It is, but I, I think it's true, too. I mean, look, everybody knows the Lakers and the Warriors get talked about, and maybe the Celtics, too, approximately 100 times more than the average team, at least on the national level. And I think he had a point. I mean, coming out of game one, Nikola Jokic had unbelievable stat line. He got a lot of credit for that. I actually thought Jamal Murray played great in game one and didn't get quite enough credit for that. But so much of the focus was on the Lakers' comeback, their defensive adjustment, kind of putting Rui Hachimura on Nikola Jokic, and you know trying to build the case that, look, yes, Denver won, but maybe the Lakers uh, have figured something out. I think he was spot on with that assessment. That's a lot of what I heard on uh, you know from the national level as well. What you saw in Game 2, though, was Denver actually struggle early rather than getting out to the hot start, and they were the ones who made the key adjustments down the stretch. They were the ones that showed more backbone, more discipline down the stretch. They were the ones hitting all the big shots in the late-game moments. Jamal and Murray going absolutely crazy in the fourth quarter, 23 of his 37 points in the fourth quarter, and they were making uh, Anthony Davis and uh, LeBron James, I don't know if they're making them look old, but certainly making them look tired in the key moments. So I think he was feeling himself. I, I think Michael Malone likes the grandstand. He likes the stage a little bit. He likes to stand up for a team and, and try to instill confidence in them, given that that franchise has never made the NBA Finals before. And they truly believe there it's their, it's their time. You know, you heard Jamal Murray say, you know, getting overlooked, it's going to feel a lot sweeter once we win the championship. Like, these guys are feeling themselves, John. They really have a lot of confidence, and they're going to have a chance to go up and, and take a 3-0 lead tomorrow. We'll see if they can do it. The most important player in Game 3, in your mind, uh, who's that player that this all sort of rests with right now? Well, you know, to me, the X factor for this entire series has actually been Murray. I said that before the series started. And the reason why, you've got Jokic versus Anthony Davis. It's not that those two guys are going to cancel each other out, but you know you're going to get excellent offense from Jokic every night. You're going to get excellent defense from Anthony Davis every night. Those are going to be sort of the defining players for these teams, and they're great foils, right? I mean, Denver is the number one postseason offense. The Lakers are the number one postseason defense. It's a really nice match. But I think for Denver, when they really kick up to sixth gear, Murray is scoring, and he's helping them keep the pace going. And they've underfeeded at home so far in the playoffs. 
because they're in Denver. They're just running you at the altitude. They're pushing the ball down your throat, and then Murray is kind of uh, stepping on your throat uh, with, with the big-time shots and the clutch moments, right? It hasn't always been quite that simple on the road. Uh, he's had a little bit more shooting struggle. Some of their other uh, you know, supporting cast guys haven't shot the ball as well on the road either, and that's why he's so crucial because the Nuggets are at their worst when Nikola Jokic kind of gets turned into a one-man team, when he has to do all the scoring, when teams are able to kind of limit his passing ability, you just have to have that scoring balance. And when Murray is hot, everybody else feeds off of it. You saw he had a couple three-pointers in a row in the fourth quarter. What do you know? Boom, Michael Porter Jr. hits another back-breaking three-pointer right after that. So I think he's been the X factor for this entire series. And if the Lakers can hold him in check, they've got a great chance of winning. But so far, they're 0 for 2 in that department. If the Lakers are dismissed and they lose this series to the Nuggets, what does it do to their trajectory, their plan, Ben? Well, it starts to become a very expensive summer because all those guys you brought in to say, hey, LeBron, we're going to try to give you one last shot at it. Hey, Anthony Davis, we're going to try to get you some help on the defensive end. All those guys are going to want to start to get paid, you know, and they're going to face some choices. I think Austin Reeves has, has solidified himself as a core member of this group. I mean, a completely overlooked player coming out of college. He's been great for them all season long. He's been super important for them in the playoffs. The guy can just flat out ball, and they have to take care of him. But it's going to get expensive because I know there's going to be a lot of GMs around the league saying, this guy's definitely worth $20 million a year. I mean, he's rock solid. You can really count on him. He fits with anybody plays hard on defense, and he's a really skilled scorer as well. So he's going to get his money. I think the big question then becomes, well, can you afford to pay him and D'Angelo Russell, right? Or if you don't pay D'Angelo Russell, or if he's asking for too much money, how do you fill that hole? Because it would be a problem, a position. That's why they went to go trade for Westbrook a couple years ago. They wanted somebody else who could kind of pick up that ball-handling slack. And don't look now, Rui Hachimura has been on fire in the postseason. He's played great basketball. He's setting himself up for a nice payday, whether that's the Lakers or somebody else who can kind of come and poach him from the Lakers. So, uh, you know, all of this fun uh, over the last couple of months since the trade deadline, it's been great for the Lakers fans. They're resurrected. They're so excited down here in L.A. Uh, They were so forlorn for like a year and a half when they had to watch Westbrook, you know, turn the ball over constantly and brick all these jumpers. Uh, they're loving life right now, but the, the problem is, you know, someone's going to have to pay the check at the end of this, and we'll see how expensive it gets. Ben Golliver, Washington Post NBA writer, national NBA writer, is with us. Uh, you know, with the criticism of the NBA years ago was, hey, it's predictable. We can always we can always pick who's going to be in the finals or general idea of that. Um, feels a little bit more like the NFL with the Miami Heat in the East. How good is this for the league to see the Heat doing what they have done to this point? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a little bit of an any given Sunday vibe when you've got an eight seed in the conference finals, up in the conference finals, maybe with a chance to uh, make the finals. Similar deal in the West. You know, the Lakers had to play in, you know, a playing tournament. I mean, they're a seven seed uh, looking to try to win the Western Conference from uh, that side of the bracket. We've rarely seen that in NBA history. I'll say this. I get the benefits of parity for sure, you know, from the league office's perspective. You always want teams to feel like they have a shot because that cuts down on tanking. It cuts down on some of the, uh, you know, the late-season injury issues, quote-unquote. Teams like Portland have had these last couple of years where they're starting to run out these lineups so you don't even know who these guys are. You know, they don't have any NBA resumes whatsoever. Whenever teams have a chance, Typically, it's going to be better for the fans. It's going to be better for the league as a whole, better for the television partners. 
you know, at the same time, I don't think you want to overcorrect too much here. I think what, a big part of what makes the NBA great is that it's a superstar-driven league. It's uh, about the big personalities of the biggest stars. For years and years, it's also been a super team league, right, where you get the Heatles down in Miami or you get the Golden State Warriors, and then the rest of the league gets to have a good time and hate them. And what we've seen in the past is that drives huge interest and in, in huge rank, uh, ratings, television ratings, by having these big favorites who are our targets that everybody else is trying to take down. And so you know, if we get into the scenario where it's just, you know, you can't really even make predictions about who's going to win because it changes so much and it's so random because the playing field is so level, um, I think there's benefits to it. But to me, it would be a very different NBA than what we've experienced for my entire lifetime, whether that's Magic and Bird or Michael during the 90s or Tim Duncan and Kobe Bryant, those guys having their eras, straight on to LeBron and Steph having their eras. Um, I think there's a possibility that the NBA could overcorrect here, and I think sometimes it's good to have those big targets to get everybody excited. I heard you know one national writer say, "Hey, the West feels like it's wide open right now on a podcast," and I th- I said, I-, "I don't know if it feels that wide open. I think Denver is the one seed; they're going to be back. Like you know, I'm, again, I'm thinking about it from the Blazers' perspective. It doesn't feel like it's wide open. How how wide open does the West feel to you moving forward?" Yeah, that's a tricky phrase, right? Because if, if you're saying wide open as, you know, there could be a bunch of different teams to, to win it next year, I could understand that. Now, if you're saying, hey, it's it's so easy to crack into the playoff picture, uh, you got another thing coming. I think a great example on that front would be the Dallas Mavericks, right? They make the Western Conference Finals last year. They're the bell of the ball, right? You know, Luka looks like he's the future face of the NBA. Everything's going great. They lose one key player in free agency. That would be Jalen Brunson. They can't really replace him. All of a sudden, they're making panic trades for Kyrie Irving. They're losing their mind, and boom, what do you know? They're tanking down the stretch of the season, getting fined by Adam Silver for it, and missing the playoffs entirely, right? There's no thought in my mind that even going back as far as, like, January, they they would have uh, forecasted their season to play out how it did down the stretch. And so that makes it really tough. If you're on the outside of this party – uh, you know, looking in, it's going to be hard to kind of get back in there, especially when you've got some young teams that are really on the rise. You know, I look at Oklahoma City Thunder. I think they're going to be in the playoffs for years and years to come, you know, given how many draft picks they've accumulated, given how good Shake just Alexander is. A similar deal for the Utah Jazz. They're, you know, they're, they're in the right direction of their rebuild. They're going to be, um, you know, right there in the mix. And I even look like a team like San Antonio, and obviously they had the, the worst record, tied for the worst record in the in the Western Conference this year. But you get a player like Wembenyama, you've got a proven front office, you've got a proven ownership group, um, you've got a you know a Hall of Fame coach in, in Greg Popovich, and you've got a lot of cap flexibility and future draft picks. You could build a nice team around Wembenyama in a pretty quick time period. And then the San Antonio Spurs are going to be right back in that idea for, uh, you know, consistent winning and playoff spots. And that's why direction and ownership is so important to me, John. And I want to draw that contrast with the Blazers. Yes. You know, in Chicago at the draft lottery, I'm sure you saw, you know, Peter Holt, uh, as soon as they announced the Spurs get the number one pick, he yells out, let's go, and he's giving the big hug to Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum, right? Well, people dug up the photos, and they, they put them side by side, and it was, Peter Holt's dad, you know, celebrating getting the Tim Duncan pick, you know, 20-something <laughs> years ago, and then Peter Holt, the son, celebrating getting the Wembenyama pick. That's what stable ownership is all about, right? And I think you look at this Portland Trailblazer situation, 
Um, are we sure, you know, someone like Jody Allen, is she going to be as excited? Is she going to understand the implications of getting a pick like uh, Victor Wembanyama, sort of like Peter Holt, uh, the younger, understood clearly? I mean, he was going on and on during his interview after winning that number one pick about what a big deal it was going to be for the franchise. He had clearly scouted Victor Wembanyama himself. He knew what kind of a teammate what he was, what kind of a player he was. This is an invested small market owner trying to set his franchise up for another decade of success. And we know Paul Allen, if he had gotten the Victor Wembanyama pick, would have been screaming out, Let, let's go, right? It would have been the greatest day of, of his ownership tenure probably. But what do we know about Jody Allen? I'm not sure. And, and I think if you're an organization trying to crack back into the mix of the Western Conference, which is so deep right now with good teams and, and even younger teams on the come up, you've got to have a clear direction from ownership You've got to have an invested ownership personality, someone who is able to chart that course. And I look at Portland, and they're one of those teams right there with the Houston Rockets in the Western Conference where I really question the ownership more than anything else. Ben Golliver with us, Washington Post NBA writer, uh, national NBA writer. Uh, the, the Blazers get the three-pick. Damian Lillard's on record. He doesn't want a 19- or 20-year-old. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, I appreciate his loyalty. But I'm not sure if you're the Blazers, if you trade the three pick and Amphrey Simons, that you can get uh, enough that makes you uh, moves the needle and makes you a contender. What are other teams? What are other executives you talk about saying about the Blazers and their predicament? Well, first of all, John, let's look back at Blazers history, right? I mean, in terms of who are some of the most important players that have led the best eras of the Portland Trail Blazers basketball, right? Bill Walton, uh, Brandon Roy, uh, Damian Lillard himself. I mean, the list goes on. All these guys were really high picks. You know, getting the number three pick is a great asset. It's not Victor Wimbanyama, but that is an opportunity to get a guy who sets you up for the next, uh, you know, 5, 10, 12 years if you, if you hit the right guy at number three. Um, there's even a big difference between, you know, who you could potentially get at number three and, you know, a player like Shaden Sharp they drafted last year, you just go through history in terms of all the great players who have been available at number three, none greater than Michael Jordan himself, right? Portland learned that one the hard way by taking Sam Bowie number two, right? But um, there are so many Hall of Famers available at number three that you've got to treat that thing like a piece of gold. And this idea that you're going to let any player, even a franchise legend like Damian Lillard, dictate you know, what you might do with that pick, to me, it's foolish. You know, I think you've got to make the, the best decision in this case is almost always using that pick on the best player available and being patient enough for that player to grow into, you know, an all-star caliber guy, which a lot of these top three picks do. So um, I would try to just reframe this entire conversation if I was Blazers management. I don't want this narrative out there around the league that's all about, you know, Damian Lillard runs that show. You know, they're just going to do whatever they can to kind of build a, a winner around Damian Lillard. You know, Damian doesn't want to play with kids. All of those things are, you know, in my opinion, negative to the um, perception of the organization as a whole, right? Like, it's not just Dame's team, right? The Blazers were there before Damian Lillard, and, you know, one day once he retires or moves on to a different organization, the Blazers are going to be there after Damian Lillard. Blazers fans know this. You know, there was before Walton and after Walton, before Drexler, after Drexler, before Brandon Roy, after Brandon Roy. This is how it works. And if you really want to set yourself up for success these next 10 years, put away the trade machine. 
You know, get in the gym, watch these young prospects, and pick the best one you've got. If Lillard pushes back, because I'm with you, Ben, I think you have to make that pick because that's your future, and I'm not mortgaging that to try to be sixth in the West and you know make Damian happy and sell a few tickets in the next two seasons. But let's just say Joe Cronin turns to him and says, hey, we're going to pick Scoot Henderson, and you know we feel like he's part of our future, and Dame says, you know, I want out. Is you know I don't need an exact trade, but the the leverage, the value at that point for Lillard in the league. Um, you know I saw Danny Ainge get multiple firsts uh, in that Donovan Mitchell trade last year. I, I start to think about you know what you could do with Lillard to to really set your future up. Um, as as I ask you that, what crosses your mind? Well, the first thing I would say is I'm not going to advocate that they should trade for Damian Lillard, and and certainly you know there I don't. As far as I know, they're not at that kind of a crossroads moment yet, but that could be coming, whether it's this summer or next summer. Just from Portland's standpoint, it's a heartbreaking decision to make, to part with the guy. You know, the Blazers learned this, you know, dealing with the Clyde Drexler trade as well in the 90s. Like, it leaves a mark on the fan base. It leaves a mark on the organization. It's painful to, to do something like that, right? But there's never been a better time in NBA history to trade a franchise-level guy because more and more of these players have asked for trades. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, those are just the recent like midseason examples, right? But the list goes on and on. Anthony Davis, James Harden multiple times in the last couple of years. So the market is set pretty darn well. Like You just plug in how good is Damian Lillard. Well, he's not as good as Kevin Durant, right? But he's better than James Harden, and then boom. That's what your price looks like. So you're going to be getting a lot of first-round picks for him. You're probably going to be getting a couple rotation players from him. And it's going to be for a team that's looking to add a star to a group that it feels like is ready to compete for a title if they're, you know, they're, they're feeling like they're one player away. And right now there's so many thirsty owners around the NBA trying to talk themselves into being one player away. I mean, look what the Phoenix Suns did. That you know, Matt Ishbia was on the job for like, six hours and he traded his entire you know next decade of draft picks to grab Kevin Durant and he's not even an outlier he's just trying to keep up with the Joneses look at the Minnesota Timberwolves why in the world would they trade for Rudy Gobert well they're just desperate to win they they, want to win so badly and so I actually think it's a good market opportunity for some teams to be on the other end of those trades you think Utah's feeling great about the Rudy Gobert trade and the Donovan Mitchell trade Absolutely. They're loving life. Even though they didn't get Wembenyama, even though they didn't even really tank this year, they're set up for a really nice five- to ten-year window because of those trades that they made. And uh, you don't want to rush into it. You don't want to do it too soon. Lillard's going to have significant trade value to me, uh, whether it's this summer, next summer, and even the following summer, because I think his shooting ability is so good that he's going to kind of, quote-unquote, age gracefully as he continues through his 30s. So I don't think you're in a huge rush to do it. But you do have to at least, you know, think about that in the back of your mind and say, you know what, like, this could actually work out really well for us. You know, this is not like, uh, you know, the end of the road where, like, when Kevin Durant left Oklahoma City and it just, like, decimated their franchise because they didn't get anything back for him. Uh, the NBA market has evolved, and it's a, a much more efficient trade marketplace. And, uh, you know, usually if you're trading a guy, you're getting a lot of good stuff back these days. I was talking to Bob Witsit, just having a casual conversation on another matter, and you know, I got on the subject of how difficult it is for a guy like Joe Cronin, who has, you know, absentee ownership and very little proof of performance. Maybe not the relationships that some of the other GMs in the league have, and how difficult the job is 
do you have a sense on, you know, how how much harder it is for Joe Cronin to get get out and get deals and make deals, given that, you know, he's he's got very little proof of performance. Well, I think the one thing he's got is a great, upbeat personality, and I think that commands a lot of respect. I, I've never really heard anyone else around the league have anything negative to say about him. Um, you know, seeing him in Chicago, I mean, it was a big, wide smile, knowing they got that number three pick, because the mm -hmm. value of number three, like I was saying earlier, is significantly better than number five. Um, he got thrown into a tough spot. Like, it's not like he got groomed to be the Blazers' GM for 10 years in advance of that, right? I mean, the previous organization, it was very much, you know, uh, you know, one guy's making all the calls, and everybody else is sort of supporting that one guy. And uh, once you took the guy out, it's like, all right, well, you know, there's going to be a, a real transition deal to try to kind of put these pieces back together. Um, you know, ultimately, like, you learn quickly, you know, because you're put into these tough spots. You've got to make decisions on major trades like the C.J. McCollum deal. You've got to go out there and try to find pieces who fit around Damian Lillard like Jeremy Grant. And then you have to make those decisions realizing that there's risks involved and, and potentially you're going to have to sign those guys to big contracts down the line. So I think he's done, uh, you know, fine for himself. Uh, you know, it's obviously a limited track record here since he took over. It hasn't really been all that long in NBA years. But um, I think that uh, he's still trying to find that home run uh, piece, you know, that, that guy who can really make a franchise uh, you know, a difference, you know, a needle mover, as they call him. He hasn't found that quite yet. But, um, you know, certainly when you're looking around the league and there's Pat Riley and there's the Danny Ages of the world, there's even Rob Polinka, who's Kobe's agent, so he knows everybody around the league and has known him for decades. That's That's tough competition, just like it's hard to keep up with LeBron and, uh, you know, Steph Curry and those guys. Like, I mean, it, there's some really, really heavy hitter GMs out there, and, uh, you know, they're the ones who are really driving a lot of these moves, and their organizations have some advantages from a market standpoint and, a, you know, wealth standpoint and an ownership standpoint that the Blazers just don't have. Ben Golliver, you know, check out his book, a fantastic book that came out. He really studied the bubble and what went on in the NBA's bubble, and uh, he is uh, the best in the NBA, I think, Ben. Uh, you do a fantastic job. Uh, I appreciate your time, Ben. Washington Post National NBA writer Ben Golliver. Thanks, Ben. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. It's going to be a fun month for you guys up there, counting down to the draft. I can't wait I to know. see what happens. I know. I, I hope they pick a player, Ben. I hope they do. Uh, I just I, I hope they think about their future as much as the everyone wants to focus on the now. Uh, ben Goliver, thank you. There he is, Washington Post NBA writer. Great stuff, really rich. Stephen, uh, quick takeaways as you look at that. Oh, man, preach, Ben, preach. Like, the fact when he said Blazers don't give in to Damian Lillard, like, that is exactly what they need to do. Uh, no offense to Dame. Like, Dame is awesome, but they're not one move away. And to get the number three pick in the draft – as Ben described it as gold, like it is really good. And the fact that there's going to be a Brandon Miller or a Scoot Henderson, those are two guys that, you know, everyone says you can build around. You can't waste it and you want to, you know, and lose value on it and trade for a veteran that may help you get to the playoffs for a year or two by sacrificing the future. I I'm with you, John. Like it's, you explore the trade of Dame. If it doesn't work, you keep Dame and you have him for next season, but you got to draft a player. When you get the number three pick, you draft a player in that situation. I just don't want to see them give up Anthony Simons and the three pick for a player that doesn't move the needle beyond maybe a season or two. And, hey, they're the sixth seed or the seventh seed, and 
woohoo, like, you know, I get it. That sells some tickets. It keeps them from, you know, being terrible. Maybe Lillard is fooled into thinking, hey, this is uh, a good short-term prognosis. But, you know, I, I remember when Brandon Roy, right before the Blazers gave him his max contract, the Blazers shopped him, you know. And Blazer fans, if they had found out about it at the time, would have flipped. But the Blazers looked around the league and tried to measure his value. And I think it was smart. It was one of the smart things that I think Paul Allen and his staff did at the time. I mean, Kevin Pritchard was part of that staff, and he told me after the fact, he said, you know, we explored a trade. and they want, But they explored the trade with the mindset of, let's see if he has max contract value. Like, what kind of offers are we getting for Brandon Roy? Like, I don't, I don't think they were looking to give him away, but they, they very quickly found out, like, hey, there's value for this guy. I think they need to, like, you know, stop the mindset that anybody's untouchable. I love what he said about there was life before Bill Walton, there's life after Bill Walton, there's life before Brandon Roy and after Brandon Roy. It's true. There will be life for Blazer fans after Damian Lillard. Um, but I think you have to at least explore trading him, and I think you have to take the three pick and pick the best possible player. Leave it here.